0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to a Hearing Architecture mini-episode. In this mini-episode, you're going to be hearing from Melanie Bings. Melanie is a registered architect and now works in the construction industry. She is currently the Digital Engineering Manager as part of the Evolve Bayswater Alliance team, working on the Bayswater train station in Western Australia. Here's Imagine Committee member Jess Beaver speaking with Melanie about her experience working in digital engineering and how her training in architecture brought her into the world of urban infrastructure.
1: Uh, Thanks again, Mel, for being part of the um, Hearing Architecture podcast. So really interesting, I guess, pathway taken to get to the point that you've registered and then moved into the construction side. So could you give us a little overview of, I guess that trajectory, of what's led you to, uh, I guess, here today, including like your work practices or any other involvement you've had over, over that course?
2: Yeah, sure. I guess my first few years at uh, Hang Shali while I was studying gave me a good insight into architectural practices. I was always really curious about the digital ways of doing things, so I got my teeth stuck into Revit pretty early and helped out with room data sheet databases and dock control, um, a lot more of the geeky side of architecture. And that kind of gave me the door into uh, working on the children's hospital where I started working for the architects but then also uh, moved over to work for the head contractor who was John Holland at the time and wasn't too long before uh, room data sheets and Revit turned into BIM for John Holland. And from there, I jumped onto the Perth Stadium and started working for Multiplex, who I helped through uh, all their BIM deliverables on the Perth Stadium project, and then started in design management on the Karen Up Shopping Centre. And then did a the year, working for a digital engineering consultant and got to experience a bit of the client side um, and client's needs and requirements and I guess their maturity in the digital world and then decided I preferred the head contractor team and I'm obviously now working back in that world but uh, with the added I guess, interest level of being in infrastructure, which is the first time ever for me. So it's quite interesting comparing the normal building construction processes and procedures and roles on projects with infrastructure.
1: Yeah, that sounds, yeah, really interesting. I think it's such a shifting dynamic and I think we've seen it here in the past two years in our office grow incredibly from nothing like it was CAD only. And I guess a lot of people don't know what is out there and it's like people have always known Vectorworks or um, AutoCAD and so now they kind of go, well, what else is out there to take into the BIM world? Yeah. And
2: what's There's a lot of, <laughs> a, lot of yeah, a lot of tools that are continually coming out and mm. trying to get an understanding of which ones to use and which ones to invest the training time into um, is always pretty big decisions. So, yeah, um, it's definitely evolved a lot over the last few years, but the last two years I reckon is the first time that I've actually known a more positive or seen a more positive uh, spin on it where people are actually a little bit excited about it and really starting to integrate it into their companies.
1: Yeah. And so I guess you've talked about quite a few different projects and quite large-scale projects for Perth architecture, like almost landmark architectural and civic and commercial components. So how do you feel that that diversity is kind of experienced uh, and change your views on, on you know, project management and, and the growth of how BIM is progressing in our industry? I think
2: going through a couple of the major projects where they were government-mandated requirements and then switching to the Caranup Shopping Centre where there was no client BIM requirement, I saw the difference between uh, companies doing things to tick the box and deliver requirements that their client is expecting versus those that are really just doing it to improve how they do things and make their practices run better and the product that they deliver better. And I think the latter is where you see a lot of the benefits. So the companies that are curious and investigate uh, how technology can help improve what they do separate to what the client's expecting is where a lot of the benefit comes in Um, and generally speaking once you start doing that uh, the information that the clients need is just there so it's what your motives are and why they're doing things um, that tend to change how effective uh, digital technologies can be within the practices.
1: Is there a bit more work involved to deliver the latter or does it kind of come naturally once you've gone and I guess, work towards the best outcome in terms of output from your side?
2: Yeah, well, I guess the in the latter one, your end goal is to improve how you do things, whether it be more efficient, better quality, more services. So while in the short term, any change management within an organisation is expensive, time-consuming and painful, <laughs> um, if you've got that end goal that in a year or two after all of that pain is done you are coming out the other side better than you were when you started I think that's where the benefits come in uh, whereas if you're just doing it for the one job you don't invest in the long term and it's just to tick that box you still go through the pain and the um, changing processes and all that type of thing but it's not permanent so the next job you come onto it doesn't stick
1: yeah yeah it's like lessons learned because you want to grow each time from yeah. improving the project and making those efficiencies work
2: Um, Yeah, it's a more holistic uh, attitude.
1: Yeah, great. And so um, I guess now you've shifted from, I guess, the traditional architect role and currently non-practicing. So now you're leading digital engineering on projects from that head contractor side. What strengths and insight from those previous roles and I guess from that architectural mindset has kind of brought you a strength to this new position that isn't always designing beautiful arches and, um, you know, (laughs) those high-rises across the city with, you know, grandiose
2: views? I think it's just probably the uh, different hats that I've worn along the way. So during my time working at Home Charlie, I got a really good understanding of what takes time, what burns money versus provides profit for the client or a better product for the client, and then those processes that can just go around in circles and end up burning hours and having that understanding when I went to the head contractor side and kind of being that middleman between what the head contractor wants to use the information for but then an understanding of how it's produced how long it takes um, and where the pain points are just enables the process to flow a little bit better there's always going to be a few disgruntled people and you'll never keep everyone happy but um, I think having insight on both sides of the fence has been really beneficial. And even working for the DE consultant for that year gave me a little bit of the long-term insight with clients who operate facilities for 20 or 30 years after and what they really want so that when you get a contract on a project, you can actually question the client and say, okay, it says in your contract here that you want these 10 things but these six will take the design consultants ahead hell of a lot of time and are you really going to use them and being able to cut to the chase of what they actually want to use it for and make that suit how the architects produce the information and try and make it as efficient as possible for them so yeah I guess just the balance between all the different parties and who puts in the effort to produce the information and then what it gets used for.
1: Yeah it's great it almost sounds like it's strength of project management client management and it's like you're not cheating on anyone to get a better outcome it's it's just encouraging more conversation more transparency yeah. and and improving those deliverables and the end product for the user yep. yeah
2: and reducing the amount of superfluous information that gets produced and no one actually uses yeah there can be a lot of that on these projects mm,
1: okay yeah especially when you're talking about assets for that long i guess there's lots yeah. of ways of thinking about the lifespan of a building and the lifespan of what goes into it as well so i guess what do you feel then makes good architecture and design in your mind i guess and being able to deliver this more so and make it even maybe better through the influence of computer-led technology
2: i think The key to it is to try and find efficiencies through technology that allow architects to skip the monotonous, brain-dead tasks and concentrate on the creative, powerful element of what we do um, and give them more time to spend on those types of tasks mean that you end up with better design products at the end. And a lot of the time, those mundane, repetitive, brain-dead tasks can come with a lot of human error if people have to do them. So you get that win-win of if something can be automated, generally speaking, that also reduces human error and improves the quality of the product at the same time as saving architects time and giving them more time to do on the more interesting tasks. One of the other things I've seen along the way is you get architectural firms who are nervous or unsure about new ways of doing things and they lean towards scope exclusion rather than upskilling and training, and I've noticed quite a real shift of the scope that architects are engaged for these days and the fact that it tends to be reducing because other people are willing to, for example, do the LOD 500 drafting. There's a lot of profit and fees that come from as-built changes um, on projects and While, yes, there's risk that goes with that and managing the contracts around that can be painful, to exclude it entirely means that there's a whole bunch of profit that just got excluded that you could have potentially earned. So I think a lot of practices that are excluding scope because it's different and they haven't done it before could be looking at potentially even expanding their scope and just hiring a couple of other people who are more familiar with the new technologies and then they can charge those out and get additional fees for new services, which obviously helps with your practice diversity. And in times like this with COVID, diversity is a good thing for practices to have.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's an industry that needs to be nimble and dynamic and to be able to adapt and change to the times, whether it's a a pandemic like COVID, whether it's a downturn or an upturn in, in work, and the demand from particular clients or develop, uh, development in the city. So um, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I think when you say that people, yeah, they have this fear of or maybe failure or, or liability, so they prefer the exclusion over the inclusion and and take the learning curve. So um, I think it sounds like it's a specialist culture that needs to just have more information and transparency and education around those elements. Even knowledge
2: sharing between practices is getting more important than ever. Previously, it was kind of the culture where architectural practices hold close to them, the IP that they had to set themselves apart from other architectural practices. But I think in this day and age, it's more important that we can knowledge share between different practices and help each other learn as quick as possible and keep up to speed with uh, what's out there so that we're not
1: wasting our time as a profession. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, there's a, there is still a nature of competitiveness in, in, in an industry, but it needs to be an industry that grows together and can Yeah, up. yeah awesome. Um, and so I guess um, in terms of computer-led technology and what you've seen to date, are there any constraints and opportunity or, or opportunities that exist in, in Perth and WA which are more present than elsewhere in Australia?
2: Yeah, I think WA has definitely taken a slightly different path to the other states. The government, around the time of the children's hospital and the stadium, put a lot of effort into mandating requirements on projects, which kick-started the digital world in WA. But then I think other states like New South Wales and Victoria have put more time and effort into their internal systems and processes and requirements in the last couple of years that have enabled a clearer structure for projects and deliverables, which I think is probably a better way of doing things rather than just here's some requirements uh, on some projects and see what the industry comes back with. Mm. Um, So, yeah, from my opinion, I think other states are doing more in regard to government standards, which does then filter down. But within practices, I don't think there's a heap of differences between how many practices are using technology in Brisbane versus here. I think some disciplines tend to use it more. So engineers are better at spreadsheets, they're better at data, and they enjoy formulas a lot more than architects. So I have seen an earlier uptake in some of the algorithmic and parametric design tools and the uptake on those tools within engineering disciplines compared to architects. But again, that's if you go to New South Wales, it's a similar take to the firms that you see over here. And after COVID, a lot of conferences available over east are now available online and a lot more of the communication interstate happens. So, yeah, I don't think there's a huge difference in what's available. I think the main difference is just in government structure and how that filters down and affects the industry.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, especially if there's a differentiation in between state with, I guess, the government's mandate or legislation or whether it's policy or preference and um, how much government-led design is happening in those states as well based on, you know, so many yeah. different
2: factors. But I then mean, the government's doing a lot more infrastructure now and less major facilities, so um, the shift has kind of moved into that uh, industry and there are less hospitals and uh, those types of projects going on.
1: Yeah, lots of roads and lots of great train stations. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like yeah it's interesting. <laughs>
1: between, yeah, what's what happens where and, and I guess the preference on spending and things. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see, I guess, the different disciplines and, and realms that are progressing state by state. And imagining if it was a nationally led rule you know it would be a very different country
2: (laughs) yeah Um, yeah for sure yeah
1: um i guess so moving on to i guess the last last question i have for you mel um do you where do you see the industry moving and i guess being influenced in the ways by constant change and introduction of BIM now to most major design projects
2: and and briefs moving forward into the future? I picked out three main areas um, to talk about. The first was practice operations and how architectural practices run. I think some of the staffing and recruitment processes might become a little bit more diverse. Um, I see benefits in practices hiring coding or programming people who have zero construction knowledge Um, because having them at hand to help you out with clever Dynamo scripts and other uh, Rhino um, coding and those types of tools can really enable the architects to do what they want a lot more fluidly without having to learn coding or um, get bogged down in the detail of those uh, parts of the software. So I think, yeah, a little bit more diversity on the pool of recruitment And then obviously COVID with uh, the flexibility and working remotely will change how practices run, uh, who works where, when, how many offices they actually need and do they have more hot desks and less permanent desks and those types of changes. And I think what you were talking about earlier with agility is really important. They're going to have to take, note of what their processes are how they improve them change them how they become agile and continually adapt and change because it's never going to stop this technology is going to come thicker and faster and it's going to change quicker so they'll have to actually build processes to deal with that and become good at changing quickly then the next area I think it'll affect is collaboration The more projects that people get on where people regularly share models, especially with the client and the builder, means that there's a lot more transparency, a lot more information that's getting communicated all the time and is available all the time. So communication has to improve with that. Uh, What team is working on which area? How are you collaborating? What's the workflow? What areas are good to be used versus those that are still in development? It becomes a lot more of a live, fluid Uh, evolution of design rather than the static stages that we're used to with PDFs. There's a whole change management process that comes around with that as well. And then finally, a couple that I wanted to touch on was more the disruptive changes that will come. So there are platforms like Archistar, which a lot of architects will groan at and say the quality is not the same in platforms like that. But when you're a developer and you can try a few options yourself at a relatively quick and easy platform, which is probably the fraction of a cost of an architect and you know that you're checking a lot of the council boxes along the way, it'll be appealing and they'll use it and they'll use it instead of architects. So I think it's a really good idea for architects themselves to be familiar with those platforms and be able to give the alternative to a developer. Sure, we'll use that platform, we'll combine it with our knowledge and you'll get the best of both worlds. And then... A lot of the arguments these days is about FM people asking for information on projects and clients asking for information but not wanting to pay for it. And I think primarily that's come from previously the client and FM teams not having a substantial return on investment for this information. But over the last year I've seen the internet of things emerging and that in a facilities management world is a direct cost saving when they can start to do what's called predictive maintenance instead of preventative maintenance. So for example, you service your car every 10,000 kilometers to prevent it from breaking down on the freeway. If you had little sensors around the cars that told you when something was about to fail and you didn't have to service it until you got that alert, you're gonna save money. So when you work your way backwards from that, internet of things is really most useful when you've got a BIM model to attach it to. So that'll start filtering backwards, I think, over the next five or 10 years as facilities management teams themselves become more digital and they then expect it from the clients who then ask it from the architects. But they have that return on investment that they're happy to pay for it along the way. So yeah, hopefully that starts filtering backwards and improving the cost side to all this and the contract side. Um, but, yeah, time will tell.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. I think there's just so many different parties now and, and people coming together to, to see these things coming into action, especially when you talk about like um, f- facilities management and things like that. It's just so many yeah. different stakeholders and parties that rely on such detailed and correct information to see These buildings come to life. It's not a get to the finish line, like cut the ribbon and you're done. It's it's thinking about all those things. And I think imagine like FM like going and having access to the BIM model once the job's complete, and then still tinkering with that as time progresses to then adjust the suit. Yeah, yeah. it'd be incredible. It's like you have a, a digital library of all of these massive, amazing, or whether it's infrastructure or or built form, like in the architectural realm, it's, yeah, it's just starting
2: to collect a city. (laughs) And then you get onto the next stage, which is the smart cities where the council wants to start getting hold of all this information and stitching it all together and making it available to the public. And it really is the desire for that information and how many hands that information goes through along the way that is making it so important and the digital side of it more
1: important. Yeah, and just getting that data correct. And I guess, like you said, the less human error there is, the more accurately we, we can progress into these things as well. And so yeah. that's why this yeah. data is so vital.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Cool. I never thought I'd be super excited about technology, but it, it is it is <laughs> such an interesting topic. And um, it's so interesting to see how our industry is moving towards new chapter of progression I think I know it's been around for a long time but it's just still developing more and
2: more so and it's just so integrated now that it's going to be a part of every professional's life and yeah exactly it doesn't matter what profession you're in um, the information age and the digital information has tentacles everywhere and it's connected through so many different phases of uh, design construction demolition redesign and along the way you've got everyone from project managers to construction staff to subcontractors, designers, clients, facilities management people, mm-hmm. operators, but just, yeah, so many people use the same information along the way. So it gets very complicated very quickly. Yeah.
1: No, Yeah. That's <laughs> fantastic. I think, thanks so much for chatting, Mel. It's been really, really interesting. And um, I think it's very exciting to see someone like yourself carrying this forward into the industry in such a passionate way and, invoking change with a lot of different people and um doing some great things around well perth for one but you know in a in a state and national and
2: hopefully international level for everyone else thanks it's um change isn't a fun thing for anyone um humans don't like it innately so yeah you've got to i guess lean into it and learn ways of dealing with it and making it work for you along the way
0: Thanks for listening. This has been a mini episode of Hearing Architecture featuring Melanie Binks from the Evolve Bayswater Alliance team in WA. This episode was coordinated by Imagine Committee member Jess Beaver. If you'd like to hear more interviews with architects from around Australia, please keep listening to Hearing Architecture on your favourite podcast app. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rotter, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.